Greetings, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, the first episode of Face to Face on Race. This episode is called Black and White, uh, and you'll see for obvious reasons in just a moment. Um, <clears throat> my name is Royden, uh, Christchurch Midrand. Hopefully, you'll know us as my co-host, Black uh, Brabi, better known as. Um, yeah, the two of us, we, we want to have this conversation. I'm just going to quickly say a few words about what the point of these conversations is. Uh, we feel that just over the last few years, uh, as a culture and therefore also as a church, we've just been lurching from one crisis on race to the next. So um, there'll be a, a big blow up in the media, some horrible incident, and then there'll be a flurry of, uh, of emotion and activity and and, and talks on race uh, and conversation, and then it'll die down and it'll just simmer below the surface. And then we go for a bit, uh, maybe a couple of months, and then there's another big explosion, flurry of activity, emotion, conversations, heated, tense conversations, and then we sort of move and it goes back below the surface. And, and that cycle just tends to repeat and repeat and repeat. And we're tired of it, personally, um, both of us, and I'm sure many of you are tired of that cycle. Um, and so we wanted to be a bit more proactive as a church community and really um, have these conversations in the cool light of day when, uh, when we're thinking clearly, when they're less emotional, and, um, and really think through the gospel and how the gospel impacts all of this um, so that it's, it's more proactive uh, it's more preemptive when the next crisis comes. We all of us are better equipped. Our characters have been that much more formed. We we are better positioned to handle what comes uh, what comes our way in terms of of racial tension. So that's the that's the big idea. Black, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, um, I think I think you've kind of covered um, just the idea of of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, I just wanted to intro our first episode and actually just get into it. Um, so what we what we're doing, as Royden has said, we're going to have a number of other episodes, but today we particularly just want to speak about our own personal stories when it comes to race. Um, and we just want to look at two questions. The first one is just how we grew up uh, with understanding of race and what has our experience been uh, growing up in South Africa. One as a black guy and obviously Royden as, as, a, as a white guy. Um, and then most importantly, how the gospel transformed our views on race and how the gospel is even now, as God is sanctifying us, transforming our views um, and our experiences when it comes to, when it comes to race. And I think it's, it's probably just wise to say that um, because we do uh, um, serve in a church that is, is diverse in many ways, uh, we, we're not speaking for the whole white community uh, and we're not speaking for the whole black community. Um, but uh, we, we're pretty sure that our experiences might be relatable um, to, to a lot of people. Uh, so mm. we, we just want to put that out there and say that we acknowledge that everybody's story is nuanced and, and it's very particular and personal. Um, hence, we want to share our stories and make this conversation very re relatable to, to all of us. Um, so we, we would obviously invite questions and dialogue. We want to engage with, with you guys um, and hope this is, is actually helpful. So I'm, I'm going to kick this off um, with just my own personal story and how I grew up with, with uh, the understanding of race and my own experience. 
and then just speak about how the gospel um, has actually transformed that. Then I'll, I'll hand over to you, right, and um, for you to share your story with us as well. So, um, yeah, contrary to popular belief, a lot of people think I'm 15 uh, just because of how handsome I look. But um, turning 32 this year, so I've, I've, I've been alive for three decades and and two years. Um, and so born in, in 1988 um, in Tembisa Hospital, uh, one of the dopest hospitals ever. Um, so, so I was born there and, and I, I start there just to say that um, I, I did not experience apartheid at a level where I could, I could recall uh, what it was like. I was, I was born just towards the end of it. Um, I mean, two years after my birth, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Um, and soon, soon after that, negotiations started. So, so I, I hear of apartheid stories and just the horrors and the scars um, of that from my parents, from my uncles. Um, I had some conversations with my, parent, my, grand, my grandparents from my mother's side um, before they, they passed on. So I, I, I know of apartheid experientially just from hearing stories and, and otherwise just from, from reading books and watching documentaries. Um, so, so I cannot speak uh, to the experience of apartheid uh, at a personal level. Again, I was born towards the end of it. Um, but obviously, uh, as I tell my story, I think there has been um, some, some um, uh, bad fruit, obviously, that's born out of apartheid that I got to taste uh, just living in South Africa as a black guy. Uh, but again, born in a township, I grew up in Tembisa. I, I spent most of my life uh, in Tembisa. Uh, and, and when I started school from Great North, um, I started going to, to white school. So, so I've always spent uh, eight, eight hours of my life uh, surrounded by white people, being in a, in a, in a Western um, culture, being in, in quote unquote a white space. And then the other eight hours of my life awake, I spent in the township uh, with black people uh, speaking Zulu. And, and just living in, in those two contexts. I think, I think the clever people call it code switching. So, so eight, eight hours of my life, I was in one area code and then other eight hours, um, I, was, I was in another area code. And I think there's just rich experiences from there and stories to tell around there. But my first introduction to race was, I think in 94, uh, when we had our, our elections. So my father sat me down um, and then he was just explaining to me what is what is happening, what the big hoorah was, uh, what elections are, why they're so important to us as black people, and and I think I think I missed a lot of that conversation. But there's one thing that stuck out to me. Um, he he asked me if I know any white Zanellis at school, or any white Sipos, or any white Nontlantlas that I see at school. Um, and so obviously as a kid, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. Like there's just Matthew, there's John, you know, there's Rose. A couple of Roydens, couple of Roydens there. Yeah, a couple of Roydens, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. And when you asked the question, I remember just in my little brain thinking, this is ridiculous. Why would you even ask me that? Like, that's just unheard of, you know? Um, and, and so and so he said, it, if, if you don't know any, don't you think that's, that's unfair? So I'm like, what do you mean it's unfair? He's like, well, I have, I have a white name referring to himself. 
Um, and he says, you have a white name. So um, again, I've shared this with uh, the church family, but my parents did not name me black. And, and part of the story I'm telling today, uh, I'll get to why I named myself black. But my government name is Mlumis Ngubane, uh, and my Christian or white name was Louis. So, so till today, some people in Tembisa call me Louis, um, just short for Louis. So I, I remember sitting with my dad, uh, and I think, yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into what I feel about that name, but <laughs> I remember just sitting with him, and, and I said, yeah, so I'm Louis, my dad's English name is Solomon, and so he's like, yeah, if you don't know any white Zanelles or white Tantas, why do you think it's right that you have a white name? So I was like, I don't know, but I think it's unfair. I think we shouldn't then, because they don't want to embrace our names, so why should we, we wear their names, you know? And I remember it was such a big thing in my house that we're going to cancel my, my English name. So we're scrapping it off my birth certificate. Um, and, and none of the other kids in the township were doing that, at least the ones I was living with. So it was such a big moment for me that at that point in my little brain, I was divorcing myself from white culture and anything that was white. Um, and I think just the awareness of me being black and other people being white started growing at that point, um, just from that one moment. Um, so, so I then had other subsequent conversations with my father just about race. But at that point, I remember just like resentment starting to form in my heart um, uh, towards white people. Because previously, anything that's white is right and we aspire to that. Um, the, I, was, I was one of the first kids in my, my entire family to go to school with white people. So, so I remember thinking, well, there's, there's a level of prestige that I have, a level of honor, a level of privilege that I have because I spend eight hours of my day with white people and just some of the comments as well that my cousins would make and my aunts and my uncles um, and, and anything, obviously that's why it was perceived as right. But at that point, when I had that conversation, that's when I think my resentment started um, uh, forming. But again, I couldn't, I couldn't separate my desire to want to be white because anything that was good was white. White people lived in suburbs, white people had the cars, white people had the money. And so I think there was a tension in my heart that I want the stuff that they have because uh, it's all cool stuff, but I don't want them, you know? But how do I separate this? Because any prestige, anything that is prestigious is, 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 is associated with white culture. So if I, how, how do I separate them from the stuff they have? How do I separate them from what I perceive as their culture? Um, so, so I think I didn't have vocabulary for it. I didn't have language for it. And, and unfortunately, my father did not help me with that. Uh, but it just left me with those big ideas in my mind. And I think then just to fast forward, I'm in primary school now. And there were these two boys I went to school with, um, Karabo and Sonobile. Um, I don't know if they'll ever see this. But I think they came from very politicized or very politically conscious families. And I remember thinking in grade six, yo, these boys, like, they seem smart because they always talk about stuff that I see on the news and conversations I hear my parents speak about. So I, I valued their opinion to an extent and I was envious of them because they just seem brighter than me. Uh, and so anything that they would say, I would, I would try and investigate and find out what they, they actually mean. And, and maybe I'm, I'll be privy to like deep conversations that adults have. So grade six, they come to school and they introduce the word racist to me. And I've never heard of that word. So, so I'm like, okay, what, what is a racist? And so they say, well, a racist is white people. 
So that was, I mean, they're in grade six. So, so it's not, there's no definition to that. There's no dynamic, no nuance, nothing. It's just, hey, white people are, if that's it, racist is white, white, right? So in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Plus I have this, I have this unexplained resentment towards them. So uh, now at least I'm, I'm forming vocabulary to define what this, this resentment or hatred I have towards white people. It's because they're racist, but I don't know what racism is. So I asked them then, like, what, what, is, what is racism? So I get that it's white, but what is it? Um, and again, in, in their grade six brains, they're like, well, anything that white people do against you that you don't like, that's racist. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. That's, that's pretty clear. If there's the, a white kid in school who's going to talk to me in a way I don't like, that's a racist, right? And we're going to label him racist, and that's him. That's, that's just, we hate him. Um, and funny enough, that same day they introduced the concept of, of what a racist is, uh, I was playing with uh, these, these white boys. I remember, I remember one who was a friend of mine, Andrew. I don't remember the other two. But I think, I think we're just pulling at each other's jerseys or whatever. And then uh, I think one of them or two of them stepped on my shoe. Um, and, and just personally, if you step on my shoe, like you're not my friend anymore. I hate you and I hate your family and I don't want to. To this day, to this day, right? To this day, especially if I'm wearing white sneakers. So do not Please step on my limit. Don't. I, you touch anything else, not my shoes. Church, be warned. Church, be warned. Carry on, Black. Be warned, yeah. I'll ask John T about my white sneakers and what I said to him. <laughs> anyway, so so they stepped on my shoe, and and normally the protocol at school is that if you have an issue with somebody, you tell your class teacher. Obviously, if the issue is bigger, you take it to um, the the principal's office. Speak to the receptionist first before you take it to the principal. If you go straight to the principal, then it's it's a matter of life and death. So now. Here are these racists who stepped on my shoes. I went straight to the principal. Mm-hmm. Um, I bypassed the class teacher. I bypassed the secretary. So I got to the office and I was like, yo, I need to speak to the principal. And she's like, why? I'm like, I need to talk to him. I can't talk to you. So in her head, she's like, something bad has happened. Okay, we don't ask questions. We go straight to the principal. The so principal comes out and he's, he says, so I hear you have an issue. I'm like, yeah. Uh, what's your issue? He says, like, ah, uh, some boys have been racist towards me. I just saw that man's face go red. <laughs> <laughs> and he's thinking to himself, like, this is the early 90s. We're trying to get things right. Here's, here's a grade six black boy who's screaming racism in school. We've never had this. This is, this is going to make the headlines. I, and and I, I think just in hindsight, he was probably thinking to himself, how, like, he clearly understands what racism is because he came to me with such confidence. So he says, okay, let's talk about it. Explain what happened. So again, I didn't even try and explain a bunch of things or where I got the term racism from. I just said, Andrew and whoever these other two boys are that I can't remember, they stepped on my shoe and that's racist. And so so he was just like, what? (laughs) Honestly, like, like, that's not racist. They just stepped on your shoe. And I think at that moment, when he said, that's not racist, everything else he said after that, like my mind just blocked out. I was like, here's another white guy. He's not hearing my story. He's also racist, right? Mm. Don't want to hear anything else that he's saying. I'm actually just going to go home and tell my dad about it uh, because clearly this guy is also racist. 
Um, and so I remember going back to my class and then telling those two boys, Karabo and Swanavida, that like even even the principal is racist, guys. Like, you know, like we we doomed, we doomed. Like all our teachers are white, the principal is white, we have white kids around. We people just are stepping school. on our shoes. Yeah, white people are stepping on our shoes. <laughs> I'm like, guys, listen, we are doomed. This whole school is racist. We, I don't know how we're going to survive the last year in grade seven. Like, I, I just hate this whole thing. I, um, and, and funny enough, now that I'm thinking about it, grade seven, my favorite teacher till today was a man named Mr. Van Skalbeek, white guy. I, for some reason, I don't think he was racist. I loved him till today. I just think he's the best teacher ever. Um, but then fast forward high school, right? So, so I think in, in primary school, that was just my experience. Nothing necessarily external. And I, I just need to mention this again, because all, all my big social spaces or gathering were never with white people. So besides the eight hours I spent with white people, church didn't have any white people. I just went to an all black church in the township. I've never been to, I had never been to a white funeral. I'd never been to a white wedding. I'd never been to a white party. You know, so so even some of the, the white kids that I went to school with never invited me to their homes. So I just I just saw their houses as I was driving back to the township in my, my transport or when I was walking to to catch the taxi or or the train. But I just I was never in intimate white spaces, if I should call that. Like I'd never been into a white person's house. The only white person's house I've ever been to uh, at that point in primary school was my dad's boss because my dad was friends with his uh, boss's son. I remember going to that house and when I got there, uh, I was just like, yo, like this is everything that white people took from us. Like this is this is the house we're supposed to live in. Um, and, and, and I was just like, like all of this is just amazing. I want to be here, right? And I remember they gave me these chips. I don't till today. I don't know what they called, but I, if I see them, I'll know them. They they were very dry. If you put them on your tongue, they stick to your tongue. I don't know what they call. Mm. Um, and and the only other people I saw with those chips in, in primary school were these rich Asian kids that had come from um, I think I think it was Korea or something that. They, they just came in, into the country that had uh, immigrated to South Africa uh, when I was in grade, I think, grade five or something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, like those Asian kids are rich. Clearly this white person is rich if they have these chips. Chips um, is the mark. And I've always, Yeah, I've always thought to myself, like, yeah, when I make it in life and I acquire all that the white people have, I'll buy those chips, you know? Those chips are the mark of rich people. Um, and, and that was actually the first time I've been in a white person's house. Um, and just, I mean, he invited us into his room. He had guitars and we were playing with the stuff and whatever, whatever. And, and for me, it was just such a wild experience. And just even thinking, how am I going to tell people in the, in the hood when I go back that I've been into a white person's house? No one's going to believe me. You know what I mean? Like the only people who go to white people's houses are people who clean and work for them. But I was in their room. I was chilling with them. You know, I mean, for the fact that I even go to school with white people was already like, yo, it's a shocker. But now mm. you went to their house and mm. you ate the expensive chips that stick to your tongue. Like, that's, <laughs> that's insane. You, you, you've crossed new levels. Mm. Um, I think it was the only yeah, other experience I had in an intimate space. I actually just remembered a story now in grade five. 
I dated a white girl. Um, I don't know. Don't ask me why I was dating in grade five, but I didn't have Jesus. Um, in grade five, I was dating this white girl, and I remember. For all the youth out uh, there, just close your ears at this point. Yeah, yeah, please, please, uh, don't get me fired. Uh, <laughs> but I remember. Uh, I wrote a little letter to say, yo, can I have like a kiss on the cheek or whatever after school? Um, and then we, 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 after, I think after care, we uh, were standing close to like the gate or the, the bathrooms or something. And then I gave her a kiss on the cheek. Funny enough, at that moment, her mother showed up, right? And I remember her mother screaming, how dare you kiss a black boy? Um, and, and I it just ran, like, what I was thinking is obviously his mother's going to kill me, but like mm -hmm. after just getting over my initial fear, I was like, wow, like all she was concerned about is like that I, that she kissed uh, a white boy I and mean, a black boy, you know? Um, so I started thinking to myself, like, God, I don't, I don't know if she was going to kill me, blah, blah, blah. And at that point I didn't have my grade six understanding of what racist is, you know? So I wasn't, I was still in grade five. So I just, I was like, wow, there's a white person screamed, why, how dare you kiss a black boy? And, and the crazy thing is that the week after they took her out of the school. So she left the no school way. the week after. So, so connecting the dots, I'm like, they were just like, yo, she, I mean, she's kissing black boys. It's not going to happen. You know, she, she's going down the drain and they took her mm -hmm. out of the school and I've never seen her ever again. Um, and that's probably the closest in grade in primary school where I, I, I encountered any form of racism or anything like that. But I think just to keep the story short, so fast forward, I discover I discover rap in grade seven, and then the rest of my high school, my worldview is shaped by rap. And for anyone who who doesn't know underground rap, so what we hear on the radio, we'll call that commercial rap. But the stuff that we listen to is underground rap, right? If you think the stuff on radio, you don't want to play to your grandmother. Like the stuff we listen to, you don't even play. Like you don't play. Just God should not even hear it, right? And God is everywhere. But you just, like God shouldn't hear the stuff. It is, it is next level blasphemous. It's, it's directly opposed to God. Mm. So, so ironically, the stuff that we're listening to, underground mm. rap, would, would uphold the value of women, would uphold, but particularly black women. So not, no, not any, just not, not any woman, but particularly black women. It will speak positively about black women. It will speak positively about family. It will speak positively about saving and having money and wealth and all of that. But when it comes to Jesus, basically underground rap was Jesus is, is a white male, blonde hair, blue eyes, and he's homosexual. And we do not worship that God. We do not worship that guy. He's actually a Roman guy who's, who was posing as a first century Jew. And all he wants to do is continue promoting homosexuality through the church. And, mm. and he's, he's essentially the white devil. So, so I don't, throughout my high school, I, I perceived Jesus as a white devil. White people were white devils to me. And I did not want anything to do with them. And so obviously now, like all the little experience that I had, my dad talking to me in 94, kissing that girl in grade five, having that racist thing that happened in grade six with the principal and those boys, the thing I, I perceived as racism. Now I have language for it. Now I have vocabulary for it. Now now the, re the resentment I had when I was in my dad's 
boss's house and eating those chips that stuck to my tongue. I'm like, yo, now I have language for it. Um, and so a lot of underground rap basically said, we hate white people. Um, there's, there's another group called Dead Press. Uh, even their album was banned from, from shops because the, 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 the narrative or the rhetoric that they were promoting is just, again, like we, we don't want anything to do with white people. The education they're giving us um, is, is actually designed to keep black people oppressed and it's toxic to our people. We need to, we need to learn our own uh, 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 systems of education. Uh, the food that white people are giving us is poisonous to the black body. So, so anything that comes from white companies, anything that white people would recommend, we do not eat. We have to grow our own veggies, grow our own thing. So I'm in high school trying to make sense of the world and I'm formulating my worldview around these things. I'm like, okay, what food do I eat? Okay, we don't eat McDonald's. We don't eat stuff from Woolies. In fact, anything from any supermarket because there's some white hands in it or white fingers. Let's grow our own thing and eat our own veggies. You know what I mean? How, how are we going to dress? We don't buy anything that comes from white people. We just need to make sure that we, we, we buy clothes from the teller down the road. Uh, when, when we go get our shoes fixed, no white person is touching that stuff. We're taking it to the guy down the road, you know? So, so the white devil was my big thing. And that's where my name comes from, uh, the name Black. I was thinking around those things. So three things that informed why I made the decision to call myself black. One is cause I hated white people. I don't want anything to do with white people. Secondly, um, I was affirming my own blackness. So again, I'm trying to find my own place in the world. Um, so I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, what's the, the basic thing about me? What's essential about me? What's my blackness? So I have to affirm that everywhere I go. So in, if anyone is going to call me by name, it will remind me of who I am. You know, so when people say black, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I am. That's exactly who I am. And I think then the, 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 the last thing uh, was I was looking at, at everything again and saying, if white people are going to colonize the world, if white people are going to take stuff, they might even do that in the future again. But there's one thing they can't take away from me, and that's my blackness. You know, so, so I hate white people, I want to affirm myself, and I just want to uh, know that that's one thing white people can't take. They, they, can, they can take my education away. So if they kick me out of their schools, they'll take the education away. You know, if they come for, for the hood and take our house, they'll take that away. Um, if, if, if they want to start bombing us, they can take all of that, but they can't take my blackness. You, you can put me in prison, but you'll never take my blackness away from me, right? Mm. So, so I remember in high school, we actually read the Bible just so that we can prove it's written by white people and it's there to oppress black people. I was, I was probably this close to becoming Muslim until I was like, yo, man, I can't, I can't wear those clothes, bro. I like clothes too much and I can't. And I was honest. I was just like, it's not going to happen. We actually even had a guy come to my friend's house probably for like three straight months and just teaching us what the Quran is and what, how we're supposed to live. And I was just like, sheesh, so I'm telling you, I'm going to have to abandon my baggy jeans. I'm mm. like, nah, it's That's a price too hard to pay for truth even. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? For, exactly. I'm like, I'm going to abandon my white sneakers. It's not happening, bro. <laughs> I can't do that. You know? And, and if I wear like the, the clothes that the Muslim guys wear, you can't see the sneakers cause they'll cover them. Uh, no, I'm like, what's the point? It, it, yeah, yeah. 
and then and then obviously we crucified Jehovah's Witnesses. We didn't want anything to do with them, um, and, and and we just said like all this stuff is is given to us by white people, and there was just a, a growing hatred towards white people. And again, at the same time, I have to acknowledge I'm still not in white people's intimate spaces, so I don't know anything about about you guys. I'm just knowing stuff from what I'm reading, from what I'm listening to, and what I'm seeing in the media, and just some of the stories my own family has told me about about apartheid. So, so I I still don't have a very personal judgment on on who you are, mm-hmm. um, and so I go throughout high school obviously with that resentment, and then uh, varsity happened, um, and shortly after university, that's when I, I got saved. And, and then, and then I, I came to know who Jesus is, what He's done for me. And I think the the hardest thing was actually reconciling the truth that Jesus is not a white man, um, that is not blonde, he's not blue eyed, he's not a, uh, he, he's not he's not homosexual, and he's not promoting that. I think that was one of the biggest hurdles that I had to get over uh, in coming to know who Christ is, because obviously I had I had built my identity around that and just my hatred towards towards him was because I, I perceived him as a, as a white person, mm. um, and so and so when I when I got saved, knowing what the truth is, knowing who Christ is, what He's done for me, um, I had I had some real some real uh, digging to do and some real questions to answer. Um, so the first and, and and primary one being, do I drop the name black? Like don't don't call me that anymore because of where it comes from. Um, um, and, and yeah, do I just go by my government name? Uh, who am I going to be known as now? Because my entire de- identity was built around this thing. And I remember just um, getting a strong sense um, that I shouldn't drop it again, because if God is in the business of redemption, he can redeem even that. Um, mm-hmm. When I became a Christian, I did not stop being black. My understanding of my blackness warped by my anger and just some of the things that I was taught Yes, it was. Right, um, was 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 me trying to affirm my blackness because I actually did not know who I am in Christ. Yeah, I had to find my identity somewhere else. I had to fit in. I wanted to belong. We we made for companionship. We made to know who we are. So so I grappled with it for a long time. Um, so 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 I realized just reading through Scripture. No, God made me in His image. So it's not a mistake that I am black. There's good things about my blackness. There's a lot of things that we can celebrate in the black culture. Uh, for example, Ubuntu. I'm like, that's that's a principle that that is is very biblical. The understanding of community, the understanding of of helping others, the understanding of living in in, in a communal sense and sharing things with people. Like that's a biblical um, that's a biblical principle, and I can hold on to those truths. There's things that are redeemable about my culture. There's things that I obviously can shun away from in light of what Jesus has taught me about, about my blackness, about himself in the scriptures. Um, so that's when I actually made the decision to put the newborn after black um, because that informs what the black is. So a newborn is a newborn child in Christ, a new man, a new creation. Um, mm. I'm, I'm made afresh because of the cross of Christ. I'm made new because... Of, of his blood and what he's done for me and his sacrifice. Um, and, and so now the black in my name became a reminder of, of the many black people I know in the township that still hold on to those kind of beliefs, that hold on to, to that kind of thinking. And I think the larger, the larger concern I have 
for black people is is the the sense of inferiority, the sense of not belonging, the sense of feeling like you're not supposed to be in this world because slavery, apartheid, and any form of imp- uh, oppression has caused us to to feel like that, to believe that about ourselves, uh, and it's obviously a false narrative. But we have value because of who Jesus is, uh, because of who God is and how he's made us. He's given us value because he's made us in his image. Dogs don't have the, God, the, the image of God, but I have the image of God, you know. Seeing my own mother's inferiority complex and, and wanting to affirm her, but through the truth of, of, of the cross, through the, the truth of, of the, 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 the principle of the Imago Dei. And so, and so, I left the t- the name black just so that I could be reminded that even 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 if I move geographically away from the township, I'm still black, and there's still black people that I I love and care for, and there's a lot of black people who are still being fed this false narrative that they're worthless, um, or, or they or they or they inferior just because they're black, and so it's there to remind me of that truth, and it's there to 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 again just yeah point me back to, to, to those people. So what I see it as now is God did not make me, uh, make a mistake by making me black, but he's given me the advantage of knowing my own language, knowing my own people, so that if I go tell my black people the truth of scripture, I can do it in a way that you can't as a white mm. person. Mm. You can do it in a way that's very unique and authentic uh, to our experience. So God made me black and he did not, I wasn't born in Santon. There were black people who were born in the suburbs. I wasn't, I was born in a township and it's God's doing, it's God's plan and it's unique so that I can speak to the township in a way that somebody who does not come from there will have, will have to learn that a hundred years for them to, to actually just do it in an authentic way. I can just do it naturally. And it's a gift and it's a grace and it's mercy that God has given me. So it's not a mistake that I was born in a township. I actually celebrate it now mm-hmm. because of the truth of, of, of Christ and scripture. Um, so, yeah, I said I was going to be five minutes, but again, I'm a preacher and here we are. <laughs> I, I'm glad you went. I'm glad you went. I, I have a question there just to follow up, man. Um, first of all, just to say that Lewis is a questionable name, even in white culture. Uh, so... <laughs> So I feel your pain there. Um, but the Lord redeemed you in, in, in one sense. One of the things that is closest to the core in terms of your identity was your blackness, right? Yeah. And that's how you yeah. were describing that process. But the other, the other area where he uh, did some incredible redeeming work was, was another thing that's so core to your identity, and that's rap, right? Yeah. So, so, so you were listening to underground rap, uh, a lot of hatred there, just listening to what you were describing. You know, a yeah. lot of a lot of vitriol, a lot of um, bitterness and anger. But now you use that same medium for something else, and I think that yeah. that story is also worth telling a little bit for for whoever's watching this because it's another story of the redeeming power of the gospel. So, do you want to just say a few things on that? Yeah, yeah sure, sure, definitely, bro. So, um, so like I said, I started rapping in grade seven. So I think it's been 18 years now. I was, I was telling my wife yesterday. Um, and and when I actually got to university, I dropped rap because um, I had, I'd gotten over my underground rap phase and just wanting to, yeah, just wanting to affirm myself in, in that way. 
And so I, I picked up comedy because I was just like, rap is not going to make me money. Nobody wants to hear about white devils and, and songs. I'm just leaving that and I'm just going to pick up comedy. So I did comedy for three years in university. And when I got saved, the na- there was a nagging feeling that I need to go back to music. That's mm. what I was made for. That's what I need to be doing. Um, and so I picked it up again. But I remember the early days just feeling like, Yo, the church does not want rap. Like, I've, it's just not seen as a positive thing. And I get it because commercial rap, mainstream rap, and definitely underground rap has not been uh, uh, portrayed in any positive light because there's nothing necessarily that, that is uh, positive in the lyrics that, that people are, uh, are sharing, in the videos that people are, are shooting. So I was just like, how, how am I going to do this? Because it doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't feel wrong that, that I want to rap. It doesn't feel wrong that I want to rap about Jesus. But I just couldn't reconcile those two ideas. And I didn't have any um, references around me. Uh, not that there weren't. I just didn't have them around me. Mm. Um, but then I remembered there was a group in Tembisa called Lost Days Fam. And uh, so it's Lost Days Family as in the Lost Days. Um, and so I remembered that they Christians and I was like, okay, I'll try and see what they're doing. Uh, but slowly I started realizing that there's other Christian rappers globally doing things. So I think that just gave me a sense of relief to know, okay, I'm not the only one. Uh, there's clearly a, a community of guys who are doing this, but I had to, I had to get to a place where I know why I'm doing this from the scriptures, not just cause there's a, a community of people doing it. Colossians chapter one was the, the thing that sealed it for me. Mm. So Colossians 1.15, and I'm paraphrasing, but everything is created for uh, by him and for him. Um, so when I read that, I remember thinking, well, it's everything, not some things. So even rap is created by God for God. So when, when, when rap started in 1973 uh, in the Bronx with DJ Cool Herc, God intended that to be done for his glory uh, mm. and to be used for, for his kingdom. So I was like, yeah, like everything else in the world we taint, you know, um, and everything else is, is basically just marred by our sin and our own corruption. So, so if God is redeeming me and he hasn't clearly taken me out of, of the hip hop community, because even when I was doing comedy, I was still frequenting some of those places that I used to go to. So I'm like, oh, I'm still here. And again, if, if God is leaving me uh, uh, to, to hold on to that name Black, just to remind me of, how, of where he's placed me, where I was born. So it's clearly doing that with rap as well. Um, so, so that just gave me confidence to say, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rap for Jesus. Right? And, and those early raps, yeah, see, they, they were horrible. Uh, like, like I think Sunday, Sunday school rhymes were, were way better. Sunday school rhymes were worth Grammys compared to the stuff I was, I was writing. <laughs> I, I remember I did one song at some church called Monkeys Over the Rainbow. And I was basically speaking about how we, God has made us monkeys and the rainbow <laughs> is, is heaven, basically. So, as a stupid metaphor, and I could see everybody in the church is just like, we just let the devil in. Like, what, what is this? Um, but I think the more I just obviously got into the Bible, the more I listened to, to, to more good sermons and got good teaching, it, it changed the, the stuff I was writing. But, but ever since, I, I strongly believe that, that 
as God is redeeming education through Christians or economics or he's redeeming families or any space, uh, he's doing the same thing with rap. It's, it's that John 17 high priestly prayer. Jesus says he, God shouldn't take us out of the world, but he should leave us there uh, so that we, we, we can bring light into dark spaces. And so God does not take me out of the culture of rap, but he leaves me in there, redeems my heart so that I can go in and share Christ with people. And, and, and I remember um, meeting some of the guys I was with in the early underground days, and they heard me rap about Jesus now. And here we are thinking Jesus is, is a white, blonde, homosexual guy, is a white devil. And I get on stage and I rap about Jesus. So the two things they couldn't, they couldn't deny is just my my clear proclamation of the gospel. They couldn't deny that. I mean, at some point, guys who had joints in their hands dropped them and crushed them. There were guys with, with beer who just put that stuff down and were attentive. And I mean, this is like rowdy underground sessions. If you've been to any underground session, you know. Like, yeah, all, the time, made, all the time. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, back in the day in the yeah, 70s. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, nobody listens to you unless you're amazing, you know? So so you have to fight for attention in those spaces and you have to be gripping and amazing in, in your in your lyricism uh, to grab them and your music has to be head bumping. If, if your beat does not make us do this, we're not listening to you at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I get on stage and just my, my clear, bold proclamation of the gospel and, and the Jesus of the scriptures was already like, wait, like, what are you doing? We hate that guy. But but you speaking of him in a way we've never heard. And you're a black guy and you say all of the stuff about Jesus. Um, and then secondly, well, we can't deny that you're actually doing it in a very good way. Like your, your lyricism is on point. We, I mean, you you learned the stuff from here, from, from mm. these streets. We, we mm. know how to manipulate words. You know how to create metaphors and punchlines and all of that. So so you're not doing it in a way that's cheap and, and it's just weird. Yeah. But we get it and we identify with it. So I think they, could, they couldn't deny those two things. Mm. And that just gave a whole lot of um, uh, ability to, to then just share Jesus with them when I got on, off stage. So I remember one guy who was, I mean, unfortunately, he, he, he after high school, was just caught on drugs and it was... Uh, just a messy situation. He was there. He was in tears and he was just like, yo, my life is a mess. I need help. Um, and I remember in that moment, in fact, Lily was with me. I remember in that moment saying, this is this is what God made me for. This is I want to do this with the rest of my mm. life. I want to share mm. And if I'm going to do it on stage, that's, that's a bonus. I want to do it through music. But clearly this is what I'm made for. Um, and, and it's just been beautiful seeing how God has redeemed that as well. Um, so, so I think, like what you said, those two core essential things that that I I rested on those two things <laughs> to give me worth and value. And here, God is like, no, rest on my shoulders now, and use these two things in their proper proper context. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they don't necessarily give you value, but they tools in your hands that I've given you, so that you can do the work of the kingdom and do do what what matters, and that is to share Jesus with people. Um, so yeah, so I think that's that's been a, an, an amazing an amazing thing um, so far. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful story, man. Uh, we're gonna Zoom is gonna kick us up in a second. We're gonna have to flip the disc and and start a new recording. Yeah. But just to uh, just to say, 
shameless pun time, guys. This wasn't part of the program, but if you have not listened to Black's music, I think it captures a lot of the story that he's been sharing, and it is brilliant. It's just an example to any any aspiring, uh, any Christian who's also an aspiring artist. You don't have to yeah. bury that under a bushel. Uh, you, you must you must use your gifts and abilities, um, and 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 it must be better than the culture, right? Just because yeah. it's Christian doesn't mean it must be lame, which is um, unfortunately sometimes uh, that comes through in some of the Christian movies and so on. But uh, but listen to Black's music, and you will find it is uh, often better. Uh, I mean, it's competitive uh, with anything out there, and and the gospel is crystal clear. Uh, and it and it and it puts to music the story, the beautiful story we've just heard. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd encourage you, Black. Thanks for sharing, man. Uh, in a moment, we'll be back, and I'll and and we'll and we'll uh, do the mirror image of that story. Yeah, thanks, bro. Yeah, please, bro. Cool.